Luke chapter 22. We're going to be towards the end of the chapter. You're welcome to turn there with me in your Bible if you like, or it will be on the screen, or it's in your bulletin, or if you just want to close your eyes and listen as the Word of God washes over us, let us go to the Word together. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who have come for him, am I leading rebellion that you have come with, me, with swords and clubs? This is the word of God for the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Happy Father's Day. It's different on this side of it, I will say. Normally when I wish Happy Father's Day, you know, I've never had been a father myself. And so it's, it's, it's exciting. I would like to say, I've never said this before, and I totally get it now from as a parent perspective a little bit differently. If you have a child that like cries during my, when I preach, like I don't care. Y'all can stay. It's not gonna, I, you, nothing's going to distract me. I'm just saying. I'm pretty focused when I get going on my train of thought that nothing's going to knock me off. But I do understand if you're like, I don't want to disturb other people or like I want to make sure like sometimes it's hard to get August to quiet down. So I might like so you can do whatever you want. Just, I just want to say you're never going to bother me. It's not going to offend me if you and your child stay throughout the entire worship service. I think it's such a, a pleasing sound to the Lord's ears, which is why I need to be more like the Lord. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying three o'clock in the morning. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm like, hey, Lord, let that sound be pleasing, please. <laughs> I'm thankful for our worship team. Christine does such a great job leading the team, leading the band, and, and everything is just so smooth. It's just so good. And worship, I just was in it today, and it's, I'm always in it, but like, I don't know. The Holy Spirit's just moving in such great ways in our lives, and I'm so thankful for that. As we finish out our series this week, We've, um, we've been for the past two weeks and again for this week talking about different phrases that are popular in Christianity but are not actually found in scripture. And I'm sad that we're ending it because it's been so fun. It's fun for me to write these sermons. It's fun to have these conversations after the fact. I've had a conversation in a couple of days each week after these sermons just be like, oh, I didn't know that was in the Bi- not in the Bible. Or, you know, I've been thinking that like my entire life, but I never felt like, okay, saying that out loud. Um, one of the things I think is so great about our church is that we welcome conversation. We welcome discussion. We welcome us to be able to come at things from different angles and say, here's how, you know, I see things. I would love to hear how you see things. Let's talk about that together. And um, in a way, this series has provided for that. And so last week, um, we talked about uh, how God helps those who can't help themselves compared to the popular phrase, God helps those who do help themselves. And in that, we saw that uh, we are all sinners. And so there's a solidarity amongst us as humans that we are all coming to this table of grace, and we're all coming to this relationship with God um, with the same baggage in that we are all in need of God's grace. None of us can earn it on our own. None of us are perfect. In our first weeks, we talked about how everything doesn't happen for a reason. Um, That's a very popular phrase, everything happens for a reason. Well, actually, that's not in the Bible, and as we thought about that from a perspective of free will and God doing things in our lives and not making us do them, but compelling us and working on our lives, we saw that we are all subject to the happenstance and circumstances of life. And that sometimes life is not 
as it should be. And sometimes life is not fair and sometimes not, life's not how we imagine it, but that God can still be with us in and through that. But that's also another kind of like thing that unites us as brothers and sisters, is it not? We all come to that, these life circumstances knowing that everything might not necessarily happen for a reason. So we are all subject to living this life together. Do you, do you kind of catch a theme between the two? Because there's been an overarching theme for this whole series. All three of these have one thing that kind of ties them all together. And today we're going to talk about that directly. I want to conclude this series by emphasizing this point about the, the oneness of humanity. About how we're not all as different as we think. That there's a commonality that exists between us all around the world. And so if you allow me, I'd like to preach on the subject, hate the sin, love the sinner. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. May the, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. All right, all right. So one of the things I've loved about being here now for a year, can y'all believe like July 1st will be a year that y'all have been stuck with me? I mean, that we've got to, you've got to be together with me. Um, we've been here for a year and it's been stellar, but I'm now to the point where I feel comfortable to just kind of, you know, laugh a little more, cut loose a little bit. And you're like, you weren't doing that to begin with. But one of the key indicators is my hair is getting a little bit longer. And I haven't had short hair, I mean, very long in my life. I've only had short hair for like two years. But I feel like y'all aren't gonna judge me now if I get a little shaggy in the back. I'm bringing the mullet back a little bit. But, but here's the thing, like, when I first got here, I was like, man, I need to be all hot and tight. I gotta make sure that they don't think I'm some vagabond, you know, rolling up in here, my tie-dye T-shirts, which I don't wear much anymore. I still own them. I just don't wear them as much because they're a little tight. They're tight tie-dye T-shirts. But my hair's getting a little bit longer, and I thought about it. I was like, you know, I haven't been rushing to get a haircut because they're going to love me. Like, because we love each other, because we're a family. Not because you're, like, forced to love me, but because I feel like, I mean, this is kind of my perspective on the matter, my read on it. Like, we've got, we've got a good thing going on here, you know? I, I, I like it here. I, I like to think that you're not ready to kick me out yet. And so, like, my hair's getting a little bit longer. That's, we're going to have to deal with it. But here's the thing. Because of that, like, I've always kind of felt like a long-haired kind of guy. And here's what I mean by that. Like, in college, I was, like, the epitome of, like, finding yourself type deal. Like, you know, tie-dye t-shirt, long hair. Like, locks of love long. Like, down to my back long. And no shoes or anything. I was just kind of this carefree, you know, fly by seat your pants. Don't plan anything. Let's drive to the beach at midnight from Montgomery. Let's, I mean, let's, that's just kind of me in college. Like, the exact opposite of my bride. She was not that. The first class she ever skipped in life was because I literally picked her up and put her on my shoulder and we went to a friend's room. We stayed there until 15 minutes after class started so she'd be counted absent anyway. That was the first time she'd ever skipped a class in her entire life. I couldn't believe it. I'd skipped like so many classes up to that point. That I was like, I've done enough for both of us for a lifetime. I'm just saying. My friends say on my tombstone, there'll be a phrase that just says, skip it on it because I'm just, here's the thing. You gotta weigh the consequences. Is it worth skipping it or not? Like there will be ramifications for the act of skipping it, but sometimes it's just good to do. I'm just saying. <laughs> just we gotta enjoy life as it comes to us. We can't be so rigid. However, I think the reason why I'm saying all this because this is kind of the way my life reflects itself is because I feel like I was on a crusade and still kind of am to just help humanity chill out a little bit. I mean, we're just high-strung people, are we not? We are quick to move from task to task, from thing to thing. I mean, there are so many self-help books about helping us slow down, about helping us see the goodness of life. I mean, like, I could preach every week about busyness, and I could get a 1,000 amens every week. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen? amen. I mean, that's just kind of 
where we are right now. That's where our society is. And I don't know if the society's always been this way. I don't, people say, well, technology allows us to be like hyper-focused and we don't like pay attention to the world anymore. It might be that, but maybe it's just like options, globalization. I don't know. There's a thousand reasons. But I'm pretty sure we can all agree that we tend to be very singularly minded, very narrow focused to be able to go from thing to thing. Those things that in our worldview that we have to make sure we get done. In a way, we're living in this scarcity mentality. Have you ever heard that phrase, scarcity mentality? It's this idea that, that there's not enough to go around in the entire world, so we have to make sure that we get what is ours. We have to make sure that, that we control the things we can control so that we don't miss out or that somebody doesn't get an advantage over us. Scarcity mentality compared to abundance mentality, which says God will provide and we're not going to be worrying about the future. We're going to be living into and trusting God. It's, scarcity mentality is a lot, lot more natural to us, I think. Our tendency is to think, you know, I need to make sure that my family is provided for. And if I have to do that and, you know, at somebody else's expense, that's just what it's going to be. I'm going to make sure we get taken care of. And in a way, like, you know, having a family now, I understand why that's so natural. We want to take care. We want to provide. We want to make sure that we're secure. But that worldview, I think, of, of go, 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 of scarcity, of all these things that kind of, I think we can generally agree is how we as humans are operating or have a propensity to operate, at least, that we're trying to work against. That worldview actually affects the way we see people. It affects the way we see life. It affects the way that we, we kind of see the world. It creates kind of a, a, a reinforced dualism in our life, scarcity and abundance, because we are very dualistic people. I don't know if you ever realize that or not. We just, our minds work in a very dualistic, dualism sense. We like very order, left and right, right or wrong, you know, Democrat, Republican, North, South, right, wrong, black, white, this, that. We're very, we just have a, we just lean towards dualities. That is, that is just a way in which our minds operate. And I think this dualistic sense of seeing the world has marred the way in which we understand God and the way in which we understand God's activity in the world and the way in which God wants us to be acting as co-humans together. Have you ever thought about this gospel today, how kind of weird it is? It's, um, it's a very strange story. I know we're not in the Easter time, which is when we normally do, read this story during Lent, right before Easter, because this is right before the crucifixion. But think about this story for just one second, because I think it tells us a little bit about the way in which Jesus sees others and Jesus sees the world. So there they are. They just finished the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And then they go to the mountain, they go to, to the Mount of Olives to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're praying, and the disciples are falling asleep, and Jesus is saying, why are you asleep? Wake up. And then all of a sudden, Judas and the temple court appear. And that means the, the people who can arrest, the people who can impose their will, the people who can cause a whole lot of trouble. These people have not liked Jesus for a long time. For years, these people have not liked Jesus. And so right when they show up, the disciples know what's up. They got chains probably with them, or a rope, or they've got their swords and clubs, and the disciples are ready for a fight. They're like, oh no, we know what's going down. We are, it's like that scene in Anchorman. Everybody's like showing up, getting ready to fight. It's like that. Probably not, actually. It's probably a lot more not that. But they get ready to show up. They're getting ready to fight. And then all of a sudden, they ask Jesus, but they don't even wait for Jesus to respond. Do you get that? They said, Jesus, should we strike them down? And before Jesus can get the words out of their mouth, somebody's cut somebody else's ear off. I mean, that's, that's what the scene is, right? Somebody cut somebody's ear off. And then Jesus says, stop this. Stop it right, just stop it, just stop it right now. And Jesus goes over 
and he heals the man. So I don't know if that means like he went and found the ear and put it back on, or a new ear grew. It didn't say it specifically. I'm just saying he healed the man. And then he looked at me and says, I've, I've been around you for years. Why do you feel, I'm not starting a rebellion. Why do you think you have to come after me with clubs and swords? And they take Jesus away. It's an interesting scene, is it not? But the, the fact that the very people who are the outsiders to Jesus, the pe- in, in our minds, so the Jesus' disciples, the insiders, the apostles, they are the good people, good guys, bad guys, duality, right? Good guys. The bad guys, Jesus, Jesus says, don't harm the bad guys. He heals the bad guys. He, he goes over and says, you know, basically shows love despite their misunderstanding of the world, despite their propensity to do what is wrong, despite the fact that they're actually coming to arrest him so that he will be killed. He loves them. Unlike our other phrases we've done this week, the idea of hate the sin, love the sinner is not necessarily unbiblical. On its own, on its surface, I mean, it, it's not technically wrong. Like, like the, the last week was like definitely wrong. Like God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. Like that's wrong. But this one, hate the sin. Yeah, we should hate sin. Like we should not like sin. Sin is bad. And like, boom, revelation for you today. In case you didn't know, sin is bad. I went to school for eight years to learn that. So sin is bad. We should not like it. It causes oppression, moral failures, social impropriety. Like it is, it is that thing which separates us from God. It is our decisions we make that separate us from God. Sin is bad. And so we should not like sin. We should hate sin. And we should also love people. And that includes loving people who do sin. And that part, according to the Bible, is a little less clear. Because in the Old Testament, there's a lot of like retribution. There's a lot of Jesus, uh, not, there's a lot of God take, telling people to take revenge, you know, to, as far as when the, the, the Israelites are going into the, the promised land, they're taking over towns and areas, they're killing people. I mean, so the Old Testament doesn't have this, it has a very much divine punishment, behavior and punishment. But the New Testament, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says to, to welcome the stranger, to bring those without a home into your home, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to care for the afflicted. Even the person that is completely different from us, which this is kind of a weird concept, you're supposed to love them. That is the Christian message. That is the ideal Jesus teaches us. This is further articulated in Paul. And I don't often bring in a separate, like, big block of text, big block of scripture, but I wanted to bring in another one this morning because th- this is so countercultural, yet as Christians, we think of it as like, oh, yeah, duh. But are you thinking about this as it applies to your life? So we're going to go to Romans just for one second. We'll go to Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere. And I think this is actually where we get the idea, hate the sin, love the sinner from. I think it might come from this. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good, right? So that kind of makes sense, especially if we keep going. Never be, la- oh, sorry, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself, all right? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share the Lord's, pe- share the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. How weird is that? Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Other translations say, live in harmony, live at peace with all people. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, if we all lived that, this world would look a lot different, right? I mean, this message that Christ calls us to do is to love even the sinners. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. Like, we don't want to associate with people who are beneath us because it took us a long time to work our way up to where we are financially, socially, you know, within our workplace. It might look weird to those, our new contemporaries, if we're hanging out with people who are of a different socioeconomic status, right? We want to take revenge because when somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them back. When somebody hurts our family, we want to hurt them back. Whenever somebody does something bad, we want to make sure that they get something bad done to them. Like, that's just kind of human nature. But the Bible says, do not do that. That is wrong. Sin is bad, and doing that is sinful. It's so counter to the ways in which we are used to seeing the world. Except I think we can all get along with hating the sin and loving the sinner. But the practicality of this idea, so if we hate sin, this is bad. If we love the sinner, what does it actually look like when it plays out in our life? What does it look like? I think it's, I think it's hard. I'm just going to be honest. I found it to be hard to truly love somebody while calling them a sinner. This is just me. Maybe this is you too. I don't know. This is me. If I'm looking at somebody and saying, you're a sinner, I need to love you. More often than not, I'm making a value judgment about them in my head. At some base level, whether I'm cognitive of it or not, in the moment, I will be later on to the fact that when I look at somebody and say, you are a sinner, I need to love you. It is not that we are sinners and so we should love each other. It's that you are less than me. I've got things figured out. I need to make sure that you know that, you're, that I love you. You need to know that I love you because you need love and because you're not as good as I am. I'm just, that's not what I mean to be. That's just not, not I'm serious. That's not who I'm trying, but that's what happens. That's just me. I might be alone in that. If so, no amens necessary. You just keep that to yourself. I'll feel bad about it later. <laughs> but I found that in the most simple way, when we see somebody as a sinner, we see them as a they and we become the us. And this is a duality that I think is more prevalent than any other. We like to see people as them, and we like to see ourselves as us. Us being the people who have everything figured out, even if we say out loud we haven't got it figured out, we still think we've got it more figured out than you do. Us being the people who behave properly because we've read the Bible, we go to church. Us being the people who are most loved by God because we pray. Them being those who are sinners who don't have it figured out yet. Them being those who are relegated to a place in society that is lower than our own social class. Them being those who we need to have pity on because they just don't know how to be us. I get the idea we should love the sinner, but my problem is that whenever I see somebody as a sinner, I'm sinning myself. Have you ever been there? Is that, is that ever you? We like, to, we like to classify things. We like to keep things in an order. We like to think like, oh, we are the enlightened ones or we're holy, we're loving, you know, we're being whatever it might be. And so, and then they are not. And so we need to love them the sinner, and we reinforce this terrible duality that says that there is an us and that there is a them, or vice versa, us and them. I'll give you some practical examples. I'll give you three practical examples of this. In the Western world, we've done this in a number of times throughout history whenever we colonize an area. Oftentimes, when a Western civilization would go in and colonize an underdeveloped 
civilization, country, tribe, what we would do is sometimes it would be under the guise of Christianity. Other times it would just be under the idea of like we're going to trade with these people. But when we come into there, we've seen that they are not who they should be, right? They're not, they don't act like us. So we need to teach them proper civility, proper behavior. And if you've watched any movies about like colonies in India or various places around the world, you've seen like the, the, the Western world will go in and we will colonize and civilize the people because they don't really understand. They're not enlightened. That is a, a classic them and us. It's not that we can value the way in which they see the world and that we can mutually benefit from one another. It's that they need to become us. Maybe um, you, you know it through another example. Have you ever met Bullhorn Guy? Bullhorn Guy's a real guy. Bullhorn Guy, I've seen Bullhorn Guy at various different places in my life. And I likely will see him when I go to the Dave Matthews concert in July over at Orange Beach. Because who Bullhorn Guy is, is Bullhorn Guy, or, or girl, or girl, but more often it's a guy. And um, they're going to stand there with their bullhorn or the megaphone or their karaoke machine that was like $40 at Walmart. And they're going to say, hey, you are sinning because you're listening to rock and roll music and you need to repent. Have you ever met Bullhorn Guy? Have you ever seen Bullhorn Guy? Have you ever been Bullhorn Guy? If you've been Bullhorn Guy, let's talk later. Um, so that was rude. That was rude. I'm sorry. That was rude. I apologize. I just don't think that's the best way to evangelize. Because what happens is, this is what happens with the Bullhorn Guy, is they yell at me as I'm getting ready to go to a rock and roll concert because they see what I'm doing as wrong. They have it figured out. They're telling me how I'm wrong. I'm the them. They are the us. They are enlightened. I am not. They are holy. I'm a sinner. And therefore, in that judgment, as opposed to building a relationship and talking about, hey, I don't necessarily think rock and roll is the best thing for your life. Let's talk about that and be in a relationship because I love you, not because I look down on you. It normally ends in some sort of, if you got hit by a Mack truck tonight, do you know what would happen to your soul? And I'm like, you know, that is not necessarily the conversation I was looking to have before the day of Matthew's concert, but let's have it. Or maybe, um, the, to, to bring it home one, one, more, one more time, one, one more practical, and then I'm going to wrap things up here. I found a great quote on Twitter. Um, there's actually a screenshot of, a, of an article somebody wrote, and I feel terrible because I didn't get the, the, the author's name. And so I'm, I'm quoting something that's definitely not mine, but it's about Coach Mike Tomlin. He's the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it's a conversation about race and race relationships in, in coaching. And, um, and so they, they, they ask him, to, to white players who, well, first off, this is just a, a, the quote is just in general talking about Coach Tomlin and about race and football. To all white players who play for a black coach, they will tell you that color of their skin doesn't matter. Of course it doesn't matter. Why should it matter? It doesn't matter one bit. But talk to an African-American player who plays for a black coach, and they will tell you that the color of their coach's skin matters deeply, profoundly, necessarily, unavoidably. Of course it matters. It has to matter. It better matter. You're dang right it matters. Because it matters just for starters to them. And this is the insoluble paradox at the heart of the racial conversation in the United States circa 2018. The white America speaks of race as a consideration to be transcended, and black America speaks of race as a force to be acknowledged. That white America believes that the purpose of take, talking about race is to one day end the conversation, and black America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day get the real conversation started. It's not that we who are white talk about race always as a bad thing. It's that we're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we be most sensitive to those who we are different than. And so often we end up saying things like, I don't see color. And I'm going to let you know right now, that is not the most helpful phrase. Because what we do when we say that is that we remove something from somebody's identity that matters to them. So we're saying, you need to be more like us. We'll, if, we, if none of us see color, then you, you, know, you can have the privilege that we've held for forever, right? And so... Oftentimes, when we talk about race, it's an us and them, even if we don't mean for it to be, 
even if we're trying to remove, so it's a very difficult thing, us and them, dualities, because even sometimes when we're trying to do what is right or what we're trying to be sensitive of, we're not appreciating the thing that makes them them, whoever they may be, whether it's somebody of a different socioeconomic status, whether it's somebody of a different job, a different race, a different gender. Oftentimes, when we're trying to even remove the dualism, sometimes we do it in a way that's not helpful without even realizing it, because we don't start to think, how would this make them feel? And so for us this morning, as I kind of wrap things up here, as we get ready to, to receive communion, Paul also talks about the body of Christ and that we are all members of one body and that there is a unity amongst the body, but also there is a uniqueness to the different members of the body. The eye cannot say to the ear because you're an eye, you're not part of the body. The hand cannot say to the foot because you're not a hand, you're not part of the body. There are things that make us unique that we should celebrate. And there are things that make us unique that we should bring to the table. And I wonder, have you ever thought about yourself? Like, are you a sinner? Have you ever thought about that? I'm gonna guess yes. That's just my best guess. And have you ever thought about what are the things that I needed to remove from, from my own worldview? What are the things in which I look at others and say, you know what, they need to be more like me? Or that group should be more like us. Because I do think we can hate sin and we can love sinners. But I think if we do so while also devaluing other people, then we ourselves become worse sinners. And so as we wrap up, this idea of us and them is kind of across the whole thing, right? Oftentimes we think, well, if everything happens for a reason, then everything about them is the way that they're supposed to be and everything about us. And that's why that is a difficult thing to believe. If God helps those who only help themselves then those who are able to help themselves become the us and everybody else is the them. And within everyday life, we are constantly evaluating and classifying people as us. Are they part of my tribe? Are they part of our group? Or are they them? And if they are them, are they sinners? Are they worse? Are they devalued? Are they less than me? And the very thing Jesus came to abolish division and bring together unity of the body to, to defeat sin so that we can live in peace with one another as much as live at peace with all people, we still go on creating these divisions only because we don't stop to think, how do I see the other people in my life? What is my worldview about those who I interact with? It could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be your coworkers, it could be your classmates, whoever it is in your life. Have you ever stopped to think, do I value them the same way I would my own family? Would I die for my enemy the way Jesus did? Would I heal the ear of somebody who came to arrest me? Because that's the hard part about the gospel, but that is also the gospel. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you challenge us and that you bring us words that are sometimes not always the most comfortable because it calls us to places and to people and to things and to doing things that we're not used to. But I, help that you give, I ask that you help give us courage, give us strength to do the things that are right, to be the people who stand up against injustice, who value all people, who love all people, who would give up our own selves on behalf of others as you did for us. So Lord, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us for the times we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us for those times we have failed to be faithful children of yours. Free us for joyful obedience. 
to you through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.